Our text this morning will be John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. <clears throat> we began chapter 20 with the, the account of the resurrection, the account of the empty tomb. We went through a number of different things as we were working our way through that portion of God's Word. We had taken one particular Lord's Day and had focused on the importance of the resurrection and, and the necessity of the resurrection. You know, often we, we tend to focus so much on just either the, the cross of Christ or we, we focus on the life, but we have to see that it is all necessary for our salvation, which includes His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. So we had discussed some of that. We had also discussed um, the blessing of Mary Magdalene and some of the other ladies, of the blessing of being the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Jesus didn't appear to the eleven. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other women first. And there's a few possibilities as to why that was so. We had discussed that maybe... One reason could have been, as some theologians would say, that whereas the disciples were fearful, they were in hiding, that the women, out of their love and their commitment and their devotion to the Lord Jesus, was going to go to the tomb anyway to finish um, putting all the spices and everything on his body to anoint him properly. And they did so out of their love and their devotion to him. But as we discussed, they get there, the tomb is empty. And with the sequence of events that happened thereafter, as we're trying to put all the gospel accounts together, most likely, as we've discussed, maybe Mary Magdalene got there first and the women were right there behind her, or maybe they got there at the same time. Mary Magdalene sees, sees that the stone is rolled back, the tomb is empty, immediately thinks that someone has stolen the body of Christ. She runs back to tell the disciples. It is then that perhaps the women that were there had uh, the angels appear to them, as Matthew records. Mary Magdalene goes to the disciples, tells the disciples. They run to the tomb. They get to the tomb. They, they peer in. They're looking. Peter is, is seeing this, and he's trying to theorize in his mind what's happening. John, on the other hand, is one who had saw the empty tomb. He sees the grave clothes there, wrapped up as if a body should be there, but no body is there. He believes. He goes back with Peter to their homes. Mary Magdalene is still there at the tomb when she has the angels appear to her. And at that very moment, perhaps after they had asked her why she is weeping, we talked about how that could have been a mild rebuke because of everything that Jesus had said thus far to tell his disciples and to tell his people that it is necessary that he goes to Jerusalem, that he's handed over, that he's killed. He rises again three days later and here they are in utter despair. So perhaps that was a, a bit of a mild rebuke by the angels, but whether they motion to her or maybe she hears something behind her, however that played out, she turns and she sees the Lord Jesus thinking he's the gardener, and it is not until she hears him call her name that she recognizes him. She is the first one to, to go back and to tell the disciples that she says, I have seen the Lord. And so as she takes this great message back to the disciples, we see something very interesting in our passage. As she claims that she has seen the risen Lord, the women claim that they have seen the risen Lord. The disciples, they're still locked in the room 
wherever they're at, whatever location that they were at, they have the doors locked, they're still fearful. Even upon hearing this news, we have seen the Lord. He's alive. And here's what he says to you. I sent to my father and to your father, my God and your God. That's the message that he had said to Mary to take to them. So, in verse 19, when evening had come, they're still locked in the house or locked wherever they're at, whatever house they're in. Now, before this happens, as you're taking the gospel account of Luke, you're seeing that what has happened before this is that Jesus has appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He goes back to their house. He blesses the food. Their eyes are open. He disappears. This has happened right before this. Now, the, the extraordinary things that happen hereafter are very unique to John in some sense. Luke does um, speak of some of these things. But really, if we're looking at what is occurring in our passage today, we're seeing how the fearful disciples who are in despair, they're, they're sorrowful, and Jesus appears to them and moves them from being fearful and having that sense of dread, wondering what's going to happen to them, moves them and builds their faith and then commissions them. He moves the fearful, sorrowful disciples to great faith and he commissions them to declare the gospel to the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus says to the disciples here is indeed to grow their faith and to, to strengthen their faith. But this is also what Jesus says to us in our time of despair as well. And we'll see that as we work our way through this passage, there are a number of things that we can look at as far as what the disciples must have been feeling at this time. But what they feel at this time, the emotions that are probably going through their minds and their hearts are emotions that we face every day. But what then does the Lord speak to us? What does he say in order to build our faith? And what he says to them is what he says to us. So let's look at this passage together. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 20, beginning of verse 19. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it gives us, for the strengthening of our faith that it produces in us by the Spirit of God. Father, help us to, to give our attention to this passage. We pray that the Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts. We need him at every moment, Father, and we pray that he would do a mighty work within us. Bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated.
So this is the same day. John is making it a point to tell us that this is the same day. The same day in which the women had come in order to anoint his body. This is the first day of the week. This is the day of his resurrection. And we find that the disciples, they're not out searching for Jesus. They're not out doing anything, even upon hearing the message from the women. The doors were locked. They were shut in the place that they were for fear of the Jews. They're still fearful. They still have that sense of dread, perhaps, wondering what's going to become of them. Now, you can imagine you're with this one for three and a half years. You're acknowledging him to be the Lord of glory. You're hearing him speak. You're hearing him talk. You're seeing the miracles and everything that he is doing. You're participating with him in the ministry to the people. You're going around Israel preaching with him. And then all of a sudden, he is taken away. He is handed over to the enemy. The enemy is able to capture him, to beat him, to crucify him. And the disciples are fearful. They did this to him. What if they come after us? For the anger and the resentment and the hate that they had towards him, surely they're going to come after us as well because of being his followers. And so there is that great fear that is upon them. Who's coming to the door? Who's going to be knocking? Is it going to be the soldiers with their clubs and torches as they were beforehand? They have a great fear that is upon them, and rightly so. They're fearful of their lives. They're fearful of what's going to happen. They fear the authorities. But you think of the other emotions that perhaps are going through their, their minds at this time as well. Perhaps that of shame. We had been with him for three and a half years. We've seen everything that he did. We heard the words of life from him. And we say to him, we're, never, we're not going anywhere. You have the words of life. And then what happens the night in which he is handed over? They run away. They flee. They've abandoned him. So maybe there is that sense of, of shame. Of that sense of loss that they've lost. In their minds, they have lost their master, their friend. They have that sense of uncertainty of the future. What's going to happen? What are the days going to be like hereafter? What is life going to be like now? Never having endured anything like this in their lives, they were fishermen beforehand. They went with the flow of everything, and now this one comes who had called them to be separate from the world, to show them the way of salvation that is in him, and now he's gone. What is life going to be like after this, after this loss that we've endured? Perhaps they have, they're, they're also fearful, maybe, even of, of their standing before God. What did, they say to, what did they say to Jesus on the road to Emmaus? The disciples that were there, as they are telling Jesus of all that has happened and all this. They don't know it's him. And they say in Luke chapter 24, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. 
Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. They were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And the implication of what they're saying is we hope this, but apparently this isn't it. So now what is their standing before God? They had heard John the Baptist speak of him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They had heard Jesus speak of this too, and now he's gone. So we hoped that he was going to be the one, but now he's gone. What do we do? What is our standing before God? Do we have peace with God? Maybe thinking of their failures, of their sins, everything that has happened thus far, abandoning the one that the Lord had had used so greatly to do these mighty works in. What is our standing with him? Did we believe wrong? Did we believe right but abandon him? What's, what's, What's happening? There's a mixture of emotions that is no doubt on the disciples' minds at this time. So many emotions most likely that are going through them. But every emotion that they are feeling at this particular moment is every emotion that we feel in this life as well. Maybe you are there even right now. What kind of discouragement have you endured in your life even recently? What kind of loss have you experienced in your life recently? What shame do you experience even now perhaps because of a sin that is in your life that you've been battling against? Do you have that uncertainty because of maybe what has happened in your life that you have peace with God? What is your standing before Him? These are all emotions that we experience every day in our lives. One of these. But what does Jesus say to us? What does He speak to our hearts? He speaks the very thing that He says to them. They're in the room. The doors are locked. And notice something. Alistair Begg had pointed this out. Notice this, that there is no great occurrence, uh, great happening. and There's no thunder and lightning. There's nothing like that whenever Jesus appears. You know, you have, you know, maybe in mythology or whatever, whenever a supposed God appears on the scene, there's all this, this you know, occurrence that happens to accompany him, to show the magnitude of who he is or whatever. There's nothing like that with our Lord. When he appears to Mary Magdalene before this, he's just there. She thinks he's the gardener. (laughs) She turns around and he's there. In this locked room, Jesus is just going to appear there. No accompaniment of anything. The text tells us that Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he says to them, peace be with you. That's what he says. Peace be with you. That common greeting among the Jews, shalom. But here it has an even greater emphasis and a greater meaning because of who is saying it. This isn't just Jesus saying hi. Out of all the things that they are experiencing in their hearts at this moment, the very words that comforted their hearts more so than any was Jesus appearing, the one that they had abandoned, the one that they had had doubts about, being the one who redeemed Israel and all of this. And he stands in their midst. He doesn't bring about rebuke. He doesn't say, I can't believe you all deserted me. Didn't I tell you the truth? He says to them, 
Peace be with you. Those were his words to his people. Now, they do think that maybe they've seen a ghost. They are frightened. They're still frightened. Back in Luke chapter 24, again, as we're looking at the the complete account here, this is when the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus has disappeared before them, and now they go to the other disciples to tell them what had happened. In verse 36 of Luke chapter 24, the text tells us, While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your, in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of, bre- a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So Jesus appears to them and he says these words, peace be to you, peace be with you. They're frightened. They can't believe what they're seeing. That, that, that shows us the state that they're in. They, they've heard the message that Jesus is alive. They've seen, the women have seen the Lord. And even when he appears to them, they still, it must be a ghost. It must be a spirit. And so he shows them his hands and his feet, the markings of, of where he had died. He shows them his side. And they're, they're still in amazement. And so he says, do you have anything to eat? And so he, he eats something in front of them. Again, showing that he is alive. He's not a spirit. He is, he is indeed the risen God-man. And that in itself was a demonstration that what they're seeing is true. What they're hearing is true. He is really alive. He is truly standing before them. He has risen from the dead as he said. Not spiritually, but in a physical glorified body Our Lord is standing before them. And so the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They rejoiced when they saw him. They rejoiced when they actually understood that he's here. He's before us. He's risen from the dead. Our sorrow is gone because he's here. He's there. And his words upon his lips that he says to us comforts our hearts even though we deserted him. Even though we have felt all this shame and discouragement and this loss. We didn't believe. And yet he says, peace be with you. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says peace be with you? Because what he is saying is what is building up their faith. It is strengthening them again. He's building back their faith. We deserted him. We hoped he was, but he is indeed the one. And his word is, peace be to you. Any doubts that they had as far as their standing with the Father because of 
of seeing their, their Lord, who they believed was the Messiah, the one who would redeem Israel. Now he's dead. What is our standing before God? And Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. You have peace with God. That's what's struggling in your hearts and your minds, wondering where you stand because you didn't believe that I was he. You have peace with God. By his offering, peace has been made with God because as he is showing himself, as he is risen from the dead, he is demonstrating that he was who he claimed to be. And that everything that he said has come to pass. Forgiveness of sins would be brought about by him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has secured peace for the disciples, for all who call upon him. He brought peace between them and God. And as a result of the peace that they now have between them and the Father, now they have the peace in their hearts, the tranquility of heart, that calmness, that wholeness now they are experiencing as a result of the Lord appearing to them and declaring these words to him, to them. Peace be with you. These are the words that our Lord speaks to our hearts as well. Peace be with you. Even in your time of suffering, in your time of pain, in your time of trials and disappointments and loss and everything else that we experience, these words is what comforts us and strengthens us. Because if we understand that we have peace with the Lord, peace with God as a result of the Lord Jesus and his work, then everything else in life can be endured. This is the most important. If you don't know where you're standing when it comes to your relationship with the Lord, then everything else is going to be falling apart as well. That uncertainty. You have peace with God as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he tells you, peace be with you, he is acknowledging a number of different things as this is, This is demonstrating his completed work to you. What does it say to you? You have peace with God. How can you have peace with God? Because he has secured your forgiveness. Because he endured the wrath of his father. He satisfies his justice and his righteousness is imputed to you. You have a new standing before the Lord. And now you can have that peace that surpasses all understanding. In the moments in which you shouldn't have peace because of whatever is going on in your life... Yet somehow or other, there is that calmness of heart that we have. When most of the time we shouldn't. And what is that? That is the Lord working in our hearts, reminding us of our standing before him as a result of Christ and the love and devotion that he has for us as his people, the care that he has for us. We have peace. I remember when my dad was dying. I remember getting the call that he had gotten cancer and that he was not doing good. And I remember burying my face, praying, asking the Lord, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And yet, in those moments as I'm burying my face in my couch, yet a calmness came over my heart to let me know everything's going to be okay. You shouldn't have that. You shouldn't have peace like that in a time in which you you have a loved one who's getting ready to die. 
someone who you love. And yet, it's there. How is it there? Because you have peace with God, and Christ has secured peace for us, and Christ gives us peace in our hearts. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. That peace that surpasses all understanding is what guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? As a result of hearing that announcement, it's, it's no wonder that the disciples then rejoiced when they saw him. They recognized that they have forgiveness of sins. That he is whom he claimed to be. They're happy to see their friend and their Lord, their master. So he says to them again, after seeing how fearful and how how much in despair that they were. He appears to them. He's building up their faith, securing them in the work that he has accomplished. You have peace. Be at peace in your hearts. And then he says it again. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He doesn't, again, you've got to understand something. We, we are so accustomed to, to thinking that our Lord is just going to just bring the hammer down on us every time that we, that we fail and that we sin. But he doesn't do that with his disciples. He doesn't do that even now, even after everything that has happened. And you got Peter that's among them there. He denied him three times. And he's among the disciples here. What does he do? He comforts them. He encourages them. And he commissions them. He says to them, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's going to, you know, John doesn't, John doesn't give us an account of the Great Commission as Matthew does. But what John is saying here, the recorded words of our Lord is indeed giving us the Great Commission. What our Lord expects. What he is what he has commanded the church to do. He is going to send them. He's going to send them into the world. They are going to be his witnesses. And you have this interesting, this interesting phrase here in verse 22. And when he had said this, as he has given the commission, as the Father sent me, I send you also. He said to them, he breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Because if we're looking at all redemptive history. We recognize that no one can come to faith apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We know that. We recognize that the Holy Spirit was actively working in in the Old Testament as well. Doing the very same things in the sense of regenerating the people of God, bringing them to faith, granting them faith. Jesus, in his upper room discourse, had promised the disciples something, something even more. That the Spirit was going to come in the fullest measure upon them in the time in which he is ascended and glorified. And we talked about the significance of Pentecost. 
The significance of Pentecost was the Spirit coming in the fullest measure upon the disciples, upon the church. It was not that the the Holy Spirit is coming to indwell. He's already doing that. But the significance is something different has, has occurred as a result of the Lord Jesus ascending and then sending the Spirit in the fullest measure that was different from the, being under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, you only had kings and priests and judges. You know, some of those men that the Spirit would come upon them in a mighty way and that they would do whatever that the Lord had commissioned them to do, whether it was leading the people, leading the charge in the army or whatever. It only happened to certain ones that the Spirit would come upon them. But at Pentecost, you have the Spirit who is poured out upon all. Your sons and your daughters. All of that language that's used there. So we recognize that the Spirit is regenerated. The Spirit is bringing people to faith. And there's going to come a time in which He is going to empower the church. So what Jesus is saying here, He's not imparting the Holy Spirit to them by breathing on them and saying, Receive the Spirit. That would be contrary to what he has said thus far. He's, he's been saying that it's necessary that I go, and when I go, I'll send the Spirit. Right? And notice that this gesture that he is doing is he's breathing on them. Notice he's breathing on them, not into them. He's breathing on them. He's making this gesture, and he's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. As he has commissioned them. All this is tied together. He commissions them to be his His witnesses in this world, he makes this gesture of breathing on them, receive the Holy Spirit, and then it is tied into what they will do. So one writer says this, Here at this occasion of the commissioning of the disciples, Jesus constitutes them as the new messianic community in anticipation of the outpouring of the Spirit subsequent to his ascension. So by this gesture, Jesus is emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit in their work of declaring the forgiveness of sins in his name. Now, the parallel passage here of Luke helps us to understand that a little bit better. So back in Luke 24, after Jesus has taken the fish and he's ate it before them, in verse 44 we read, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. And you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here's what he says in Luke's account. You are my witnesses of these things. That's what John is saying, that Jesus has said, as the Father has sent me, I'm also sending you. He is saying, and back in Luke, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And Jesus is making the gesture signifying the promise to them. The promise of my Father, receive the Holy Spirit. It's not an imparting of the Holy Spirit at that moment. It is a demonstration that the Spirit will come from Him as He is the one who is going to send Him. But the promise is not yet fulfilled 
until the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes in a mighty way upon them. What they are commissioned to do must be in the power of the Holy Spirit. It must be done through the Spirit of God and not left to themselves. What does Jesus say? Apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. But it is the Spirit of God who will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he does that through the people of God. As we discussed in the upper room discourse. But in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what they will do being his witnesses. He also says this in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What does that mean? It is, it is in connection with the, the Spirit coming upon them in a mighty way, empowering them to be His witnesses. This isn't something that I know the Roman Catholic Church in, in time past has looked at this to say that you can forgive sins, you can not forgive sins, you can grant absolution, etc., etc., but that's not what's being said here. We do not have the power to forgive sins. You know, even even the, the Jews, in Mark chapter 2, as Jesus heals the paralytic, he says to him in chapter 2, verse 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the, to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It cannot be us. We don't have the power to do that. We don't have the authority to do that. So what does he mean? Well, the idea of forgiving and retaining is... Is some legal language there. One writer says, in a Jewish context, the expression binding and loosing, is what we read elsewhere, described the activity of a judge who declared persons innocent or guilty, and thus bound or loosed, and, ba and thus bound or loosed them from the charges made against them. Now it's in this new messianic community that is being inaugurated by the Lord Jesus under the new covenant in which we now go and proclaim the forgiveness of sins in his name. That there is one name under heaven by which man can be saved. That's the message that is being given. So, as the apostle Paul and Barnabas with him, as they are preaching in Acts chapter 13, this is what they said. We're just jumping in the middle of it. <clears throat> Therefore, he says also in a psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of you or the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. So the message that is being given is the very message that Paul is giving here. That the message of the forgiveness of sins is only found in Christ. So that when we're talking to people, 
Let's just use an example. We're talking to someone. They say, well, I've been a pretty good person. I think I'm going to heaven. And we say to them, unless you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says you have no salvation. You do not have the forgiveness of sins apart from him. What are we doing? We're giving that very message that forgiveness of sins is only found in him. And we are withholding the, the, that, that embracing them as brothers and sisters in Christ because they are not brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're authorized then to affirm or deny acceptance into the believing community based on the gospel itself and the receiving of the gospel by the person. If you do not receive the gospel, the good news of Christ and what he has accomplished, then your sins are not forgiven. That's the message of the gospel. Your sins are not forgiven unless you believe upon Christ. And so in the commissioning of the disciples to go forth, to preach the good news, to be sent into the world, to be his apostles, this is the message that they bring, and they bring this message in the power of the Holy Spirit of God that will be poured out upon them in the days to come. Now what our Lord is commissioning the disciples to do here is the marching orders of the church throughout all the generations thereafter. This is what he has called all the people of God to do, to be his witnesses, to be his ambassadors, to declare, to share, to preach the gospel, to declare the forgiveness of sins can be, can be brought about in his name and only in his name. There is one mediator between God and men, and that's the man, that's the man Christ Jesus. You can have peace with God when your sins are forgiven in Christ. So the very things that the Lord Jesus is saying to the disciples here is the very things that he speaks to us. And this is what we are to speak to others. This is the message that we bring. It is so tempting today, especially because of a variety of particular ones, to want to put the cart before the horse in the sense of impacting the culture in the name of the Christian faith. We want to, to have things happen because we see maybe such decay and the degradation that is going on and we want to fix it. We want something to come about and to fix it. So maybe, maybe we want certain laws passed. Maybe we want the whole structure changed in order to be more Christianized or whatever the case may be that we have in our minds. We want to see results and we want to see it fast. But you will not impact a culture. You will not impact a nation from the top down. You can't just make laws and expect everybody to be good with that and embrace the God or embrace these laws from a God in whom they do not believe in. What is it that we're called to do? If you want to impact the culture and you want to impact a nation, what is it that you do? You do what they did, and you preach the gospel, and you declare the gospel. This is the means by which God is building his church. This is the means by which God is converting hearts. It's through the gospel. And when you have a culture that is conquered or a nation that is conquered, the laws that come thereafter will be according to the word of God. But you cannot have it apart from preaching the gospel. This is what we are called to do. 
Declare the gospel. The results are with the Lord. If we want to see change, think of this. You got 11 guys here. Then you count the Apostle Paul. Then you count the women. Then you count those that are converted thereafter, beginning in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, then in Samaria. And what do they do? By simply declaring the gospel everywhere that they go, they turn the known world upside down. So that within 200 and some years later, the empire is now Christianized. How does that happen? It can only happen through the power of God working in the hearts of his people to bring this about. It cannot be that we do something apart from what the Lord has commanded us to do and think that we're going to get the same results. So our marching orders are to be his witnesses, to declare the forgiveness of sins, to give them the same message that we ourselves have received that has brought peace to our hearts and that emboldens us in the days to come, emboldens us in our time of need and difficulties, which is that Christ has died, sin has been dealt with, and we can know the peace and the love of God through him. Let that be our message. Let that be what, what we focus upon. Let that be what encourages our hearts every day. Christ has made peace. Therefore, the things that I find myself doing that I don't want to do, as Paul says, and he goes back to that, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, but thanks be to God. In our time of sin and shame, we are brought back to the realization that Christ has forever secured our salvation and that we have forgiveness of sins in him. That builds us up even more and, clean, and helps us even more to appreciate the love and the grace and the mercy of God that we continue again. And we keep moving forward in the power of the Spirit to accomplish what God has had for us, what he, what he says for us to do. Dear friends, this, is, this isn't just for certain ones. This is for all of us whether you're young or whether you're old, if you were in Christ, your responsibility, and it should be one that we delight in, seeing as how we have received the grace of God as we have, based on nothing more than his purpose and pleasure, did he extend grace and mercy to us and make us the objects of his love. This should promote in us a great desire to, to share this with others. We should have a heart for the lost and we should have a heart for the culture to preach the gospel to them and tell them of the good news and pray for their salvation. So in your time of fear, remember Christ has given you peace. In your time of shame, remember that Christ has secured your forgiveness by, by his offering of himself. And let that then move our hearts and cultivate in us a greater desire to be his witnesses. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit would indeed give us a greater desire to share the gospel with the lost. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. How we thank you, Father, for the great encouragement that it gives to our hearts. We recognize how we fail you every day. We say things that we shouldn't or we do things that we shouldn't. And we are often ashamed of ourselves. But thank you, Father, that the Spirit of God speaks to our hearts according to your word and says, Peace be with you. That Christ has secured our salvation. He has secured our standing before you. 
Father, let us remember that and let us be so grateful for it that we don't dwell on the things wherein we have failed, but that we would be as the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind, we press forward towards the mark of the high calling of Christ. Father, help us every day. We need you every day. We cannot be your witnesses in our own power. It must be in the power of the Spirit. Father, do a mighty work within us and use us for your glory and for your honor. And for any here that do not know you, Father, I pray for them. I pray that you would give them eyes to see, that you would change their hearts and grant them faith to call upon Christ. Thank you for your word and thank you for the Holy Spirit of God who resides in us and with us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, Amen.